So tomorrow is Thanksgiving, <coughs> which many of us uh, think of as one of the best and most wonderful holidays, relatively immune from um, the fetishism of commodities, <laughs> relatively. Um, and it's this holiday which really is very much about uh, thanksgiving, gratitude, and in a way also I think generosity. So this morning I want to explore the theme of cultivating generosity and gratitude as part of our practice. And I also want very much to connect it with the themes of the last two weeks in terms of developing skillful intentions, skillful aspirations. So maybe to, to kind of situate the theme of cultivating generosity and gratitude more, more broadly. You know, our practice goes in a lot of different directions. You know, we partly want to see reality as clearly as possible and to touch our deeper nature. You know, and th those um, expressions are, can be often called, uh, can be often be seen as pointing towards awakening, towards the awakening to our deeper nature and to um, seeing reality very closely and clearly. Some of this is cultivated in deeper meditation where we see the constructed nature of our normal experience. And we complement this emphasis, which can often seem uh, not so ordinary and not so related easily to our daily lives, we complement that with an emphasis on cultivating important qualities in our daily lives that really contribute and really are expressions of that same awakening process. So there's kind of an emphasis, what we might call in a more absolute nature of things and also on the more relative nature of things. And that I, I think I'm going to talk some more about that in two weeks. I've been, I've been reflecting on that a lot, sort of the, the, the um, more absolute and depth dimension of practice in a way with the more gradual and relative dimension of practice. And so the cultivation of generosity and gratitude comes more within the framing of our, our daily practice, more the cultivation of certain qualities over time, which is a very crucial part of our practice, cultivation of loving-kindness, uh, mindfulness, wisdom, and so forth. And we talk about developing those qualities. It's also very much related to the theme of aspiration and intention because, and I talked about this the last two weeks, particularly last week, how the focus on our moment-to-moment -moment intentions is so important. That we have, I, I talked about this very simple model of practice that we are mindful of what's happening, number one. Number two, on the basis of our mindfulness and on the basis of our uh, best wisdom and compassion, we intend as to how we'll respond to what's there in the moment. And then we act. So they're like these three aspects. We're aware of what's happening. We formulate a response or an intention response to the moment. Could be a small, non-dramatic moment. My knee is itching. It could be uh, more dramatic. Someone says something that's very challenging. Uh, in any case, we respond. We formulate an intention and then we act. So that intention is really the link between mindfulness and our wisdom and our understanding, our hearts, it's the intention is the link between those aspects and action. And so it's very, very crucial. How we intend is very fundamental. And last time we looked at how intention is actually the main way that karma 
is explicated by the Buddha. That he, it, so it's, there's not so much this mystical or deterministic sense of karma as meaning because you did this three days ago, you got a bad email this morning, right? <coughs> or something like that, even, even though you know, that's not totally separate from, from karma, but it's much more of a sense of when I strengthen this quality through this intention, when I have this intention, let's say, to be more open, to be more kind, to be more generous, to develop gratitude, it basically strengthens those qualities and they become stronger in the, in, the, in the future. And when I actually act and intend to be greedy or to be self-centered, it strengthens those qualities. It's as simple as that. And so intention is this very um, key part of our practice and it really is about more and more in our lives, moment to moment, creating the space of, of um, awareness where we can have some choice as to how to respond. And it's almost like creating the, the, that aspect of space and choice, I think, is 80% of the work. Meaning that we're not simply pushed and pulled in habitual ways. It's really related to that question that you asked very much. That uh, just really asking, what should I do right now? That's 80% right there. You're there. We're there because we've taken it out of the realm of habitual reaction. And it almost, you know, and sometimes we can be skillful and sometimes not, but actually having the freedom just to ask, what should I do? Or should I go for that second piece of pumpkin pie? (laughs) Just a hypothetical example. (laughs) You know, should I go for that second piece of pumpkin pie? And you can... Perhaps tomorrow you may remember that question. And it's not to, not to say that one answer is better than the other, right? It's, but, but at least you can ask the question, and that's, and that's what's important. So we formulate these intentions, and one of the major ways that intentions get expressed in our practice is by <clears throat> intending to develop what we could call skillful or wholesome qualities. Qualities that have to do with becoming more kind, more loving, more wise, more mindful, more open-hearted. And this is really where the practices of developing generosity and uh, gratitude come in and and can really be linked very strongly with the focus that we've had the last two weeks on intention. Generally, and I'll I'll speak about generosity separately and then gratitude separately, and then we'll have some time to talk together. Um, Generally, uh, gratitude, I'm sorry, generally generosity is a movement away from a more self-centered holding on to what we think we need and have towards a more open-handed Uh, offering to both ourselves and others. I think we can be generous towards ourselves as well. It's very, very important. It's moving away from this more narrow sense of here I am by myself and I have to accumulate things and assure that everything lines up and so forth. A very common, more self-centered approach and moving towards more of a sense of interdependence and more freely offering. Now, the reason that we may be more self-centered is not something simply to judge. And so I think it's important in our practice to look at what the roots are of whatever self-centeredness we have. Sometimes it can be because there's some uh, wounding or there's been some difficulty or even trauma in the past and that self-centeredness may be more of a survival mechanism. So I think it's even as we're looking at where we might be more self-centered and not so generous, I think that compassion is called for in terms of understanding why we all have that. You know, it's really that we were 
almost like presented that as a way of doing well. Here's what you need to do, or here's your, your option. And I was thinking of generosity both as an individual quality and a quality that can be developed in a culture. I think generally here at Spirit Rock, we're trying to develop a culture of generosity. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk more about that cultural aspect, but it's something that we develop as an individual. We can develop it at a family level, at a community level, and in, in, in terms of a whole society. And I was thinking of just different expressions of generosity. That I was thinking of um, experiencing how children are often spontaneously generous. You know, that they will sometimes offer what's most important in their lives, which could be like a red truck. You know, they will offer it to other children, even though it's the most important thing they have in their lives. You know, they do that spontaneously. And there can be a sense of the joy of giving that one can see in children. Where I was also thinking of the cultural aspect of um, when I was um, younger, um, growing up and in my 20s and into my 30s, I was, um, I was living very close often to the southern mountains. You know, I grew up in Maryland and my parents later moved to Virginia. And we had land in, in the, um, on the Virginia-West Virginia border. And I spent a lot of time there. And, and at one point, um, my brother and I set out to build a cabin. Um, we had, we had um, some land by a creek. And we set out to build a cabin. And we actually um, didn't have to buy any wood that people in the area knew that we were building a cabin and they gave us all the wood we needed to build. The only thing that we spent, the house, the actual cost of the house was $1,200. The only expense was for um, a copper roof that we built. But people knew that we were building and they said, oh, I have um, a small cabin that I'm not using. Please take it down and you can use the wood. Or I have an outhouse that I'm not using. And we got all the wood. And in fact, a large part of the house was built with chestnut wood from 1910, 1920. You know, before the chestnut blight came, I think 1918, in much of the eastern part of the United States. And so we, people contributed. They were all knew we were doing this. And I found that generally happening in that part of the country. This was in the mountains in, in uh, western Virginia. And I think that was much the way much of community life in this whole country, whether I think uh, rural or urban, was for a long time. You know, that kind of spirit, uh, which I think we often don't find so much now. It's, it's less. But I think that was very common that when people, I remember having spent a lot of time there, when people had to do haying, everyone in the community helped a given farmer hay, you know. And they all, they all got together, you know. And it was very, people were very, very generous. I remember when I was first going there, I was about 20 or so, and I had, um, I had a, uh, a ponytail, you know. And I had hair halfway down my back, and I would, and I remember, and I would hitchhike, and I got picked up by people who were like in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, and they just were generous. They said, oh, this person needs a ride. <laughs> you know, and later, people who came to be really good friends, they, when we were first getting to know each other, they, they basically, we were sitting in the, you know, just having a meal. And, you know, I was sitting there with my hair, you know, halfway down my back. And they said, Don, you ever met any hippies? <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, I, found that, I found that sense of generosity really defined that culture, you know, and, it, and, I, and perhaps you've had experiences. I mean, again, it's, we can find that maybe in old neighborhoods in the city where people know each other. I think there's a, this natural generosity, or I also experienced that very strongly, um, I think particularly going into native communities, and had a very strong experience going up 
for a potlatch in uh, British Columbia up on an island called Bella Bella, which is quite a ways. It's like it took about a, um, had to go to the northern tip of Vancouver Island and then take a, a boat for about seven hours to get there. And it was an island. And um, there was a three-day potlatch that started at two or three in the afternoon and went until three in the morning for three days. And during the whole ceremony, all they, most of what they did was give away things. It's a gift-giving ceremony that they do. A lot of other things happen during that. There's their dances and their rituals and so forth. But it was really marked by, um, by giving. And there's a sense. Uh, some uh, anthropologists talk about those kind of cultures as uh, based on what they call gift economies. They're not market economies. They're gift economies, where the whole economic basis is related to giving. That's really what we're trying to do here at Spirit Rock. We're trying to develop what we might call a culture of generosity or a culture of dana. I think you know um, dana is the Pali word for generosity. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. So it's this really, it's this really strong uh, quality that can be developed. It can be an individual quality. It can be something that's really broadly held in a culture. And I think it, it, it has been held very much in uh, Buddhist culture. In the Buddhist context, the word for generosity is dana, D-A-N-A. And you've mostly heard, we've mostly heard about dana as um, in the context of um, economics, you know, at Spirit Rock. And we give dana talks, <laughs> as you know. And Marty gave a very short little talk about dana just now. And we do that with every retreat, but actually uh, the very word dana, meaning generosity, uh, is way more basic than just being about economics. It's really about the quality of offering freely and generosity in the heart and in the spirit. And it's uh, actually a starting point for practice in Asia is the cultivation of the open heart. It has much more to do with the sense of being, being a giving person, being able to give one's energy, one's insights, one's help. You know? And the economic part of it is just one part of the whole system. And it's actually listed as one of the ten core virtues to develop on the meditative path. And it's listed first. It's interesting. You know, and it is, it is really the center of it really is this sense of um, seeing where we get more contracted and more self-centered and greedy and then cultivating this offering to ourselves and others in a wise way. And so I, I really um, don't think in the, in the Asian context over 2,500 years that they sort of had nine of these paramis or paramitas, ten of, nine of these virtues, and they said, we need to have one more. We need, we need one more to have ten. And we can, we can mention dana, and that will also take care of fundraising. <laughs> I don't think it happened like that. <laughs> you know, Don was not thrown in there to take care of the economics of the Buddhist community. And so, okay, well, wait, you see, Don is, it's, it's, it's number one. It's number one on the list. So, <laughs> you know, so, so shape up. <laughs> I, I don't think they were doing that. It's really much more of a general quality of the heart, really a general quality of our being that we, that we attempt to cultivate. And... It's one of the qualities of a bodhisattva, someone who's dedicated to help others. You know? And you know, in my own experience in, in monasteries, going to Buddhist monasteries, everything was freely offered. And there weren't, actually weren't any dana talks. <laughs> Generally, they're not dana talks in Asia <laughs> because it's understood. It's part of the culture. And I would, when I would be at monasteries, they would offer me a cabin and they'd offer me teachings. There was no bill. There was no sense of anything being expected. It was a sense of freely offering. And then, you know, it was understood that if I wanted to freely offer something to support the monastery, that was my option, but it wasn't even mentioned. 
wasn't even mentioned, was part of the culture, which I think is the direction we want, we're trying to go towards this sense of a culture of generosity. And, you know, in the terms of a larger culture, we have a, we have a ways to go, you know, in, in terms of the extent to which generosity rather than greed is at the center of things. I think we know that. And I was thinking of another example just from a, a friend who, who did grow up in Asia, a friend named uh, Thich Minh Duc. He was, uh, who, who was a Vietnamese teacher and a, uh, a friend and a, a, a Dharma heir of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And I remember we were once, um, there was one, I think it was uh, lunchtime if I remember right, and I was down, he, he's uh, based in the San Jose area and has been a teacher at the Duc Vien Temple in San Jose, which is a primarily Vietnamese temple. And um, I was there, and he, one day he was taking myself and two other people, he was basically taking us out to lunch. And we were in the car, and I remember the, there was a driver, and he was in the front seat, and I was in the back seat. Also in the back seat was a man named Sulak Sabaraksha from Thailand. Uh, some of you may have met him, but he's, um, he's probably in his 70s now, but he's been a major developer of what's called engaged Buddhism in Thailand. And done, he's been, done a lot of great work. He's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize twice. And we, he was in the back seat, and he was just talking about some of his work in Thailand. And uh, Thich Minh Duc, um, said, that's really good work. And he, he took out his wallet and he just gave him like $300. And I sat there and, you know, the, to use a phrase that Sylvia sometimes uses, I said, whoa. <laughs> so, so, I don't think I've ever done anything like that. I don't think anything like that would kind of crossed my mind. So I said, oh, something to learn here. And that, that example has really stayed with me. I said, oh, he has a different relationship to money than I do. Right? Very, very interesting, you know, very, very interesting. Because I'm sure he sees all of that just more as kind of energy that's moving, or more like the native idea of the gift that keeps moving, the gift that keeps moving, and the importance of keeping the gift moving. It's very, it's very interesting. So a little bit further about um, generosity, we, I think we can look at uh, the practice of cultivating generosity in two ways. One is that we can look at what stands in the way of generosity, and that's particularly greed and self-centeredness. And secondly, we can actually actively cultivate generosity. Uh, so I think there's both the looking at the more constricted or contracted aspects of ourselves and then developing the more expansive qualities. That's, that's one way to really look at the practice. And so we can, we can really see what, what, um, what is there when I feel greedy or when I feel like I'm grasping onto what's mine. What's there? Can we study that? I was thinking of um, when I and Diana Winston once taught a class on greed. We taught a class called Greed Management. <laughs> kind of pattern, patterned after anger management. And we had very few people came. <laughs> you know, it was the kind of thing where if, if people had actually responded out of clear recognition of their own states of mind and need, we would have had thousands of people come. And we would have been, you know, the, would, have, would have become the greed gurus of the Bay Area, but it didn't happen. Um, we had five people come. We had two teachers and five people. <laughs> but, but that was fine. We, we were actually in it for the investigation. So we had five people, in our, and we, had, we, we did a, I think we did a five-week class, and the final exam, this was the time when the uh, new Bed Bath & Beyond uh, store in El Cerrito was being opened, and our final exam at the, the last class of the greed management class was we were to do a silent walking meditation through the newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> Which was really an interesting experience. I mean, I, you know, I had never been to a Bed Bath & Beyond. This was like eight or nine years ago. And we went to this Bed Bath & Beyond you know, with a group, you know, group of seven people. 
and you know, no one spoke and people just walked silently through Bed Bath and Beyond and it was kind of amazing to do it. I mean, I, you know, since then I've gone there quite a lot and I take it more for granted, but the first time to see that there were actually 40 op options for garbage cans. <laughs> Amazing horror. You know, what I found was that there were, there were all these things that someone had made that fulfilled needs that I didn't even realize I had. <laughs> and why not buy something? Just, you know, I, the one I remember the most was, um, let's see, it was um, some kind of stand that one could put on top of a television set to make more space for something else. <laughs> that stayed in my mind for some reason. So, so, but more in a more uh, um, focused way, we also looked at the nature of greed and more carefully than, than we, I think I had done before. And, and we came to see that, uh, came to study greed, which I think if you're interested in generosity, you have to study greed. You have to study self-centeredness. And we found that what is greed? There's a, there, there are certain qualities that it has, which I invite you to look for when they come up in your experience. Greed has to do with a narrow focus on my needs. It's a lot of self-centeredness. To the extent that other people's needs either don't matter very much or they don't matter at all. It's interesting. You know, there's that's, that's part of greed. Greed also has a short-term focus. We're just looking to satisfy a particular need right now. Um, we found in looking at greed that there's also a lack of connection to others when there's greed. There's a sense of my needs matter, others don't, others' needs don't, and we're kind of disconnected. And there, there could be also a sense of when we actually looked at greed as being somewhat out of balance and even out of control. This need is taking me over. I have to have that device place on top of my television set or, or style number 37 of the garbage can. I have to have that. Um, it's humorous when I mention those examples, but I think we know that sometimes that can be there for something that is maybe a little more meaningful, that kind of greed. Also, we found in greed there was an obliviousness to consequences often. Very evident in when you look to the larger market system, right? and to what people have done on Wall Street. That greed involves often an inability to look at the long term and to look at consequences. And lastly, we found often that greed came with a sense of entitlement. Like, you know, kind of like, my needs should be satisfied because, you know, whatever, I'm special. Again, we can see that on the social level. And so part of our practice is to look at that, those aspects of greed, to study them. Part of it is to open up to, uh, to give more. And in the traditional teachings on generosity, it's actually clarified to whom we should give, what we should give, how we should give, and why we should give. It's interest so it's interesting to study the very traditional teachings on generosity. Who should we give to? We should give to, classically, over the last few thousand years in Buddhist tradition, we should give to friends and relatives first. Or that's a group we should give to. We should be, give to those who are close to us. We should al also give to those in need, those who are poor, those who are sick, those who are afflicted, those who are helpless. And the traditional teachings included giving to animals. That care for animals was part of traditional understanding of generosity, because they are often in great need. It's also said that we should also give to those who in some ways are making sacrifices to live lives of integrity or contributing in some way. So classically this meant to give to monks and nuns. And I, I, I hope that wasn't overly self-serving of them to do that. You have to, you have to, you have to wonder when you see the list of who to give to. It's, <laughs> uh, but in any case, but I would broaden that to, to think of giving lives to those who make some kind of sacrifice to inspire us, really. So I was thinking, I would add to it artists. 
Okay? You know any artists who aren't doing so well? Artists um, aren't supported very well in our society. You know, other societies are they're supported more. You know, or I was thinking also maybe of some activists, people who are dedicated to really helping and often financially sacri make sacrifices. You know, so we could think of it that way. Um, what should we give? Uh, the <clears throat> classically, we should give that which meets the basic needs. If they're not met, food, clothing, medicine, shelter. We should give uh, education and culture, seen as something very important to give. In some stories, one should sometimes give one's own life. There are stories of the Buddha actually sacrificing his life to help others in, in, in some of his past lives. There are stories like that. The, the greatest gift is to give one's own qualities of dharma, to give mindfulness, to give awareness, to give an open heart. One gift that's often said traditionally that's very special is to give the gift of fearlessness. You know, to have a, have a fearless heart and mind is a tremendous gift to others. We could say also there's a gift of, um, of um, taking the ethical precepts, precepts so seriously that, we, that other people know that we're, we will not harm them, that we have a deep vow not to harm. That's a kind of a gift to others. How should we give? It's said we should give courteously, happily, without regrets, to both friends and foes. So you, can you feel your sense of giving getting expanded? <laughs> friends and foes. And then it adds the last guideline for who we give to is everyone all the time. It made me think there's a line in the Walt Whitman his preface to The Leaves of Grass where he says, this is what you should do. Give alms to those, all those who ask. You know, he says a lot more there, but he has that line in, in that text. And why should we give? For our own and others' freedom, ultimately. In the Mahayana teachings, there is a teaching that giving should have a threefold purity. There should be no ideas in the most pure kind of giving, no ideas of self, no idea of recipient, and no idea of the act of giving. So it's taken in that sense to be more and more a spontaneous quality of our being that we don't take credit for and that we're not even self-conscious about. That's the direction for, for, uh, for giving. So how do we do that? We can cultivate giving in certain ways. Um, one way you can say, I will do one generous act a day. Have that as your intention. Make a, you know, have, and write that down and then try to say, oh, oops, it's 9 p.m. <laughs> haven't done my generous act. What should I do? And maybe you call up a friend who's not doing well. That could be a practice or it could be to... Um, something I used to do when I used to go in places where there sometimes would be homeless, I would bring food with me you know, and give it away as much as I could. Some, some, sometimes it wasn't wanted, but I would give it away. You could do like that. Sharon Salzberg tells stories of, of a practice sometimes just saying, on this trip, I will give away uh, $20. You know, maybe I'll, get, I'll bring $20 in small bills and give it away and see what that's like, see what the experience is like. Um, we can do that in various ways. We can cultivate generosity consciously. You know, again, it can, doesn't have to be money, it can be the generosity of helping those in need, or just thinking of friends, uh, or family, or others who are in need, and we do that in small ways with the uh, giving to the, for the homeless shelter. So gratitude, the second quality to be explored, is linked with generosity. In a way, what gratitude is, is to be thankful for the generosity of others. 
than the generosity of life or the generosity of nature. And to be thankful for what we've received, really. To be thankful for, for generosity. And gratitude is this very much a, a heartfelt feeling. It doesn't come really out of exchange, but it's really a quality of a, a very sincere feeling. There's a beautiful passage which I found from um, Thomas Merton, the Catholic contemplative, for whom in his practice as a, as a Catholic monk, as a Catholic contemplative, gratitude was the essence of his practice. And some of you may also, I was thinking also, some of you may have met David Steindlrost, who's also uh, a Catholic monk, who wrote a book about... Um, uh, I think he, I think he wrote a book on gratitude. But I know he talks very much like Merton does about the value of praise, of praising the divine, of praising, praising life. He has a website called gratefulness.com. Yeah, that's right. His 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 book was called Gratefulness. Yeah, and so he very much explores. This is what Merton said. This is again using Christian language. My own, my own personal task is not simply that of poet and writer, still less commentator her pseudo-prophet, <laughs> he says. It is basically to praise God out of an inner center of silence, gratitude, and awareness. This can be realized in a life that apparently accomplishes nothing. Without centering on accomplishment or non-accomplishment, my task is simply the breathing of this gratitude from day to day in simplicity, and for the real, the real, turning my hand, for the rest, turning my hand to whatever comes, work being part of praise, whether splitting logs or writing poems, or best of all, simple notes. So he has this sense, can I have an attitude of gratitude or praise inform my daily life and be there in a simple way? And you can imagine him. I, I, I mentioned how I visited Kentucky a few weeks ago and I was out at his hermitage. Just a lot of simplicity. You can imagine that emphasis on gratitude. And maybe some time when one, each of us may have some quiet time, maybe a day that's quiet, can we focus just on gratitude and praise? And we, you know, we may have gratitude for all sorts of things. You know, we can have gratitude for um, what's good in my life. You know, one major form of gratitude practice, very simple form, is just to spontaneously reflect for five or ten minutes on what's going well in my life. It's not to, not to repress or deny what's hard, but it's just to focus on the positive. You know, sometimes we say that gratitude practice is the fifth Brahma-vihara. It's, it's, it's something that is so important, it goes along loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And it's a practice that I've done pretty much every day for quite a number of years. Just this very simple practice of inviting what I reflect on, both the larger things in my life that I can reflect on just for a few minutes, or sometimes the smaller things. I just sit here and I might reflect, I'm grateful that I slept well. I'm grateful that I'm here at Spirit Rock. I'm grateful that... I'll be seeing my extended family tomorrow, things like that. And I can be grateful also for the larger things. I can be grateful for the beauty, you know, the beauty here at Spirit Rock, the beauty in my life. I can be grateful for those who have been mentors and teachers to me. You know, I can be grateful for what I've inherited from wonderful traditions. You know, I can be grateful for being in a country where there's relative freedom to explore spiritually. Not the case in many parts of the world, right? can have that kind of gratitude. Again, not denying problematic aspects of our culture, but to really be grateful. A lot of gratitude is very linked with mudita, which is the ability to tune in to what's positive, which is this very powerful quality particularly for those of us who tend to focus on problems or the negative. Gratitude practice is a wonderful antidote. It doesn't take away your ability to see problems, but it puts it in context. Very, very, very important. Gratitude for beauty. 
gratitude even, even for what's been difficult in one's life. We can, in a sense, even be grateful for the challenges. Sometimes we can see how the challenges helped us to learn something important, you know, in some moments of reflection. So there's a, there are, I brought in a lot of poems, but I think because of time, I'm just going to end with one of my favorite expressions of gratitude. And that is um, this book called St. Francis Preaches to the Birds, which I will um, read to you in its entirety. It doesn't take that long. So I'm, I'm not going to keep you till noon, so don't worry. But I will read the whole thing, and I'll show you the text. This is about gratitude, and I'll, this is my ending. Um, St. Francis preaches to the birds. This is actually done by the people, by the artists at um, uh, Bread and Puppet in Vermont. Some of you may know that. They, they're the people with the large 40-foot puppets who often would turn up at demonstrations. And I think that the main artist is Peter Schumann. I, I used to live in Vermont, so I went there very often to their festival, which was like two or three days and free, and they would give away bread, and they'd have puppets. And so it's called the Bread and Puppet Theater. So okay. this is St. Francis. It's 5 a.m., Wake up, St. Francis. He opens the window and sings, tra-la-la. He brushes his teeth and says, thank you, teeth. He washes his, he washes his toes and he says, thank you, toes. He gets milk. He drinks his coffee. They didn't actually have coffee in the 13th century, but... <laughs> Ungrateful comment. So he gets milk, he drinks his coffee, and he says, "Thank you, coffee." He goes through the town, through the apple orchard, over the pasture, and up the hill, and the birds come flying, 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 flying. Then St. Francis preaches to the birds until the sun sets. Yes, until the sun sets. Good night. <laughs> so let's just sit for a moment. <laughs> kind of like a bedtime story. <laughs> Any reflections or questions about uh, generosity or gratitude? Questions, comments? Please. This isn't a question, but St. Francis also said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. (laughs) (laughs) Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words, yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah. I just wanted to say thank you. Mm-hmm. 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 Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 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 Thank that Thank you. 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 Thank yeah. I, mean, I thought that sounded like a very interesting thing to get into. 
Yeah, we looked at it in a lot of detail. We, I mean, what do you do in a five-week class on greed management? We, were, we, we had the title greed management was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, you know, it was like kind of paralleling anger management, you know, kind of like imagining that, you know, certain people from Wall Street would be assigned to go to our class, but we didn't have a good connection at that time, we, so we just got five people and two teachers, but yeah, it was but very, very interesting material to actually look with to actually study, and I, again, I'm recommending that um, generally our practice in almost every area would relate to disappointment as well. Uh, almost every area we want to both look to develop the positive quality, in this case generosity and gratitude. We can do practices which further the development of those qualities very clearly. There are things we can do. This is where conscious intention comes in. But we can also, and that's part of it, it's developing what we might call awakened qualities, but then going along with that, we have to look at what stands in the way or what comes up. And we have to look at that very carefully. We have to look at greed and know it very well. And part of what that does is when we look carefully enough at our patterns and our tendencies and know them well enough, then when they come up, we can say, much like the Buddha says to Mara, I see you, Mara. I see you, greed. I've looked at you. I know you're coming up now. The, four, the fourth piece of pumpkin pie. <laughs> and, and so the, the actual study of our more contracted states is really important. But we have to balance it with the other, with the other, the other kind. Please. Yes. Yeah, I think there's a lot, there's a, it's, a, it's a very strong organized force. I was reflecting on that and giving my example from Virginia and the mountains because I was reflecting on um, that, you know, that was, that ethos is still there in some parts of the country, uh, but it's also, it's also different. I remember meeting some people there who every time they would look at a, a mountain or something, they would see possible financial deals, right? So there were, that was there to some extent, but it wasn't dominance. The generosity was very strong. But I was thinking, when, when did that start changing? And I was thinking of uh, Walt Whitman's poetry a lot and, and some of his essays on democracy. He has a book called Democratic Vistas. And this was in the 1870s, and he was talking about how the economic forces were taking, were, in his view, taking over some of the communal and democratic values of the larger culture. And we're starting to get very thick. He was, you know, this is when the first scandals were happening in the 1870s, 1880s. And he was identifying that as a great threat to democracy. You know, the, the concentration of economic wealth and the impact of greed. So it's, um, yeah, it's something really to look at. If we're, it's why I think that the broader intention of a place like Spirit Rock and in our modest way what we do with Donna as ec economic arrangement is trying to move towards a larger culture of generosity and to ask, uh, you know, what, how, how can we see the larger culture skillfully? And for anyone who wants to look at that in more detail, one of the best writers on this is David Loy, L-O-Y, who's done a lot of work on, on what I would call seeing the society through Dharma eyes, which I think is really valu valuable to do. We often, uh, you know, we often have our practice and then we look at the world and it's kind of, you know, in a general sense we can have some, some questions or to maybe say this is not quite right, but we don't see it with too much 
clarity or precision in ways that actually could be the basis for a larger scale change. But David's done some of that pioneering work uh, in books which I think are in the bookstore. One of the books where he does it, where he has a very, he tries to say, you know, we talk about greed, hatred, and delusion in the individual. What does it look like when it gets institutionalized? Which, well, of course, it does, right? Greed, hatred, and delusion can get institutionalized. And they can structure uh, whole societies and whole cultures, as they do to some extent our culture, to a significant extent. So one of his books is called Money, Sex, War, and Karma. Um, another one's called The Great Awakening. And he, if you're interested in going into more detail on that, they're, they're, they're the best books that I know of its kind from a Buddhist perspective. And I also like uh, Michael Lerner's work, uh, more you know, from a, a Jewish but more like a broadly interfaith perspective for looking at um, how spiritual values might, uh, if they had power, restructure the society. Yeah, maybe last last comment, or maybe last two. Okay. Okay. Uh, it seems to me that right livelihood yeah. may serve as a bridge between um, the focus on what I can get for myself and what I can give to others. Yeah. And trying to find a way of meeting my economic needs in a generous way. Yeah. Which I'm identifying and trying to recognize how I can spend my days. Something for others. That's a great. That's a great point. Really, I hadn't seen that connection. But that's really. That sounds right. That that uh, right livelihood is a way, really, of uh, having a certain restraint and and connecting a spirit of generosity to our work. So we're not only offering, but we're we're not taking a livelihood which does harm. Yes, yeah, so that's a great point. Thanks. And last last comment or question. Yeah. This thing of I love my family and I'm glad my friends are coming over with the horrificness of the kind of pseudo holiday and trying to talk to my grade schooler about what it means and how we yeah. can be so sad about what happened to the Coast Miwok and people who lived here peacefully for three thousand years hmm. and then not be kind of overbearing, terrible hosts when people who don't necessarily share that with us yeah. come to our house and it's really clear and feeling really strongly about it. And yeah. I'd rather both be gracious and grateful and acknowledging of a genocide and a tragedy that happened right here. Yeah. What's your name again? Lisa. Lisa. Um, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot there in what you said. And is there a, um, a source that's been particularly helpful for you for learning about the Coast Miwok? Yeah. So we went to the visitor center at Point Reyes, and we got this really cute sixteen-dollar book that somebody wrote about the life and times of the Coast Miwok. Um, and it's pretty. It's not really grade school level, so we've been reading it sentence by sentence. So I read a sentence, and we talk about it, and explain the hard words, and then. I mean, it's obviously different if you're not a grade schooler. Yeah. Um, but it's, I don't even know what to say. I mean, yeah. you know, it was an amazing, peaceful community for 3,000 years. Yeah. Yeah, so. so the American Center in Nevada that I think is that was being closed for lack of funds. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. Uh, well, there's Ellen Polly, but also right in kind of like downtown suburban Nevada. Hmm. Those would be also sources. Yeah. Yeah, so but it's a the it's a great question to ask because um see it seems that there's something that's uh very virtuous about Thanksgiving, but it's also you know and, and of course it came from the pilgrims who were helped by the native peoples, right? Is it? Are really helped by the native peoples. I think that's the 
Okay. Okay, we'll have to look at that, but 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 let's but just to, I'm trying to uh, frame this. How do we both? I think there's something that's very positive about the holiday, but how do we connect that with knowing this horrific history? And how do we do so? How do we uh, do so in a way which, like you were saying, uh, combines um, general care? It's really like, how, how do I process that information without being overly reactive? And that's one way to say it, right? How do I process that? information and share it without being overbearing and it's 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 that could also be an hour-long exploration and talk right but it's a great I think it's a great question to ask like you know how do I how do I uh, it's really related to how do I have generosity and gratitude and develop those qualities but not have them it's like as I was mentioning if I I personally had a lot of tendencies to see problems, to see the negative, to, you know, to focus on that. Gratitude practice in the context is wonderful to be more balanced. The other, the other side would be some of us may have just go on the positive and forget about the problems, right? How do we have a balanced uh, way of holding both? And partly... Um, Partly, it's to see where we are individually and to really take this as ongoing practice. But I think that's, maybe if you come, well, I won't be here next week. Come in two weeks. We'll have to hear how that, how that worked for you. But I think it's, it's fantastic because how can, we, how can we cultivate gratitude, cultivate generosity, have, you know, enjoy the warmth of family or community or connection, but not be oblivious both to history and to the things that are really off in our world. It's not easy, right? It's not easy to have that balance. So, um, let me just end. I'll end with two readings, and then we'll just we'll sit quietly for a moment. So one reading is from the Buddha. If beings knew as I know the benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. If beings knew as I knew the benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. And I think I, I, I have something that actually responds to Lisa's point, but it's a little longer, so I won't say that. But I'll just ask us to just uh, invite, just in this moment as we close, invite your own practice of generosity and gratitude and to see how that works for you to develop those qualities. And how it also is crucial to look at that which gets in the way of generosity and gratitude, both individual, cultural, historical. And how do you hold both of those together? And any intentions that come out of this morning for you. So we'll just sit with that for a minute. knowing that we practice both for ourselves and for others. 
that our own cultivation of these qualities for ourselves is very, very crucial, but we also practice for others. And we, as we so often do, at the end of a session, we dedicate what's been helpful, fruitful. We offer it beyond the walls of Spirit Rock, out into the world for the benefit and healing of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.